You are listening to the Well and Simple Podcast with your host, Marissa Zabo. Hello and welcome back to the Well and Simple Podcast. Or if this is your first time listening, welcome in general to the Well and Simple Podcast. I'm your host, Marissa Zabo. And this week, there's actually been quite a few things popping up in the news and just in the things that I scroll through on the internet that I kind of wanted to, I didn't kind of want to, I actually wanted to break down for you in this week's episode, because if they're popping up for me, they're probably popping up on your feed as well. And you probably have some questions. So let's talk about some of the things that I've been seeing and the news. So this first thing that I wanted to discuss here, and this showed up like Google, like tries to read my mind and like randomly will send me an alert on my phone when there's an article it thinks I want to read. Usually it's wrong, but this time and I didn't want to read this article. Let me be clear. I saw this and immediately rolled my eyes, but obviously read it because research purposes. So this article came out about this new weight loss drug that is now being tested. And let's just talk about it. Let's Let's just do it. So the headline here, game changer drug promotes weight loss like no medicine ever seen, scientists say. Like that headline alone makes me raise both eyebrows like as high as they can go all the way to my friggin' hairline. I mean, just... so sensationalized. It's a game changer, like no medicine ever seen. Like, is this a comic book superhero we're talking about? Or is this a pharmaceutical? I'm confused. So anyway, so this, this bizarre headline pops up on my phone and I'm like, ah, shit, we learn nothing from FenFen. Are we still doing this? Okay. Of course we are because there's money to be made. So here we are. We've got this this article here, and this was um, came to me via Science Alert. But doing a Google search, pretty much all the articles are the same, um, to, regardless of which news source you're you're getting it from. So let's just let's just parse out this article because really my big issues here are this are are the reporting on this. Um, <clears throat> in the simplest terms, obesity is the product of a body's energy output being less than its energy input. But in reality, there's nothing simple about this complex and mysterious disease. That's the first sentence of the article here. And I find it very interesting that they chose to go this route as their opening line, because what they say, this is absolutely true. A person's weight is not simply the product of energy and energy out. It's so much more complicated than that. And... It's this very individual blaming fat phobic trope in our society to say, you just need to eat less and move more because we know that there are other factors like genetics, like environment, like stress levels, like hormones, like, I mean, so many other things that contribute to what a person's weight is and simply eating less and moving more 
is that going to be the answer for everybody here? So I find it interesting that they start out by saying, yes, they admit this is very complicated and mysterious. And yet they use the word disease to describe the condition of living in a larger body. And then for uh, the rest of the article, continue with this individual blaming language, even though they start the article out by saying, this is very complex. It's much more complex than energy in, energy out. So hypocritical <laughs> opening here. Um, and really, like, let's talk about calling obesity a disease, okay? First of all, I mean, the issue is the term obesity in and of itself, because this is a measure that's based on the body mass index. If you've listened to this podcast before, you know that BMI is fucking bullshit. <laughs> I've said it. Pretty much everybody I've ever had on this podcast has said it as well. So let's just break this down. BMI was developed by a racist mathematician, what, about 100 or so years ago, more than 100 years now, because I keep, I keep thinking it's the 90s, over 100 years ago, to uh, define the ideal body. And of course, this was based on measurements taken from white men. And this individual even said... This, is me this measure sh should not ever be used to define somebody's health. Uh, but here we are now over 100 years later, and we still have physicians looking at this stupid ratio of weight to height and saying, nope, you are unhealthy, simply based on that number, right? So BMI, right then and there, let's just stop saying obesity because it is a term that is meaningless when you're using and you're looking at, you know, a ratio of height to weight. So there's that. But then to say that it is a disease, I mean, what does that say about somebody who does live in a larger body? That they're ill, that there's something that needs to be treated about their condition? Like ugh, this, this, this treating it as, as a, as a pathology, it completely ignores the fact that, um, Humans are supposed to come in different shapes and sizes. And using the term disease just assumes that one's weight equates to their health. That you can look at a person and based on their size, you can say that person is unhealthy, that person is healthy. And we have more than enough scientific data that shows that that is simply not the case. Weight is not a sole indicator of health, okay? Because weight is a complicated thing, right? So to just say, well, you know, they're carrying a few extra pounds, so we can assume that they've got this, 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 and this wrong with them. There are so many people out there who would meet the criteria for obese and have healthier, have much better biomarkers than so many other straight-sized people out there. They eat well, they exercise. <sighs> I really take issue with this, this, you know, using this term disease and treating quote unquote obesity as an epidemic or an illness to be treated because it's really, really just con continuing to promote this fat phobic notion that there is something wrong with somebody who is in the obesity range on the BMI that needs to be treated or fixed. And we can assume that they are unhealthy, which is simply not the case. So 
first, that's the first sentence for you. How many minutes into recording am I now? It's almost eight minutes spent on the first sentence. So you can see how this is going to go. Let me take another sip of coffee. Okay, I'm back. All right, so obesity, which has skyrocketed in recent decades, now defining the body mass of over 40% of adult Americans, isn't just difficult for people to endure and scientists to understand, it's also incredibly hard to treat. So my first thing here is there's a punctuation mistake. That's driving me crazy. Second thing here, did they ever think that maybe obesity is difficult for people to endure because of fat phobic shit like this that gets plastered all over the internet and makes their lives even more difficult? <laughs> so one of the things that, um, you know, if you follow um, any, basically any like health or nutrition professional who takes a health at every, every size approach, um, what you will see referred to repeatedly is the impact of weight stigma on our health. And one of the major issues with a lot of the studies out there on obesity is that they fail to control for the impact of weight stigma on somebody. We know that things like stress can impact our weight, depression, that kind of thing, and access to ample medical treatment. When you are somebody living in a larger body and you are experiencing weight stigma, discrimination based on your weight, overt violence and aggression towards you based on your weight on a daily basis, the hell kind of impact do you think that that's going to have on a person? They're going to have higher stress levels. They're probably going to have anxiety. They're probably going to have depression. And the fact of the matter is that there are lots of doctors out there that will not take these symptoms of obese individuals seriously because of their weight. Instead of listening to what a patient is saying and running the proper tests based on that, they will very frequently just tell that person they just need to lose weight and send them on their merry way. It's a huge, huge problem. And I mean, it's medical malpractice is what it is, but it's accepted. And that's a huge problem. So <laughs> difficult for people to endure. You know, I'm sure this article is assuming because, you know, who wants to live in a larger body? Really, the fact of the matter is it's difficult for people to, to endure because of rhetoric like this. Let's just call it spade a spade here. This article is not helping. So there's that. And then we're back to this incredibly hard to treat this language of disease again. So many issues with this freaking article. So anyway, it continues on like this. I'm not going to, you know, continue to beat the horse that I've already killed here. So let's talk about this study, which I will say I have not read the study myself. Um, so I'm not going to comment on, you know, the study composition or, you know, um, What's the word I'm looking for? The way they do the things in the study, technique, <laughs> structure. Um, so anyway, so this uh, drug it is called semiglutide, which is actually an existing drug. It's used to treat type 2 diabetes currently. Um, so they decided, well, let's see how it works with weight loss. Um, so they did this study. It involved almost 2,000 quote-unquote obese adults across 16 different countries. So we're saying adults who meet the BMI criteria for obesity. Um, and they took a weekly dose of this drug, semaglutide. Um, <clears throat> and then they had another group, a control group that was given a placebo. 
And both groups received a lifestyle intervention course designed to promote weight loss. So again, here, assuming it is personal choices leading to these individuals being of a certain size. Here we go. Um, at the end of the trial, the participants who took the placebo lost a small but clinically insignificant amount of weight. But for those who took semaglutide, the effects were pronounced. Okay, so let's see what, what does pronounced mean. So according to this article, the pronounced effects were that the participants who took the medication lost on average 14.9% of their body weight, and over a third of the group lost more than 20% of their body weight. So those were the results of the study. <clears throat> and according to this article, this makes this particular pharmaceutical up to twice as effective as existing weight loss drugs. And how does this drug work? It's an appetite suppressant. So it makes it easier for you to starve yourself and ignore your body's internal cues telling you when you need to eat and what you need to eat. Don't you just love that? It's so good. Ugh, that's sarcasm if you're new here. <laughs> it happens a lot. So basically, um, you know, they're they're testing this drug and they're excited about it is the gist of this article. Um, and it looks like they're really trying to, to get this to market as soon as possible. Um, so new appetite suppressant out on the market. And again, it's assuming that people who live in larger bodies can't control themselves around food. It's assuming that they are of the size that they are due to deeply personal lifestyle choices um, rather than acknowledging all of the other factors that go into a person's size and also failing to acknowledge that an individual's size does not equate to their health. So <clears throat> that came out this week. That's my take on this, this new finding. I guess it was a little bit more of commentary on <laughs> the article rather than the drug, but the drug is also really symptomatic of the way that this really flawed, harmful way that we talk about weight in the society and in the medical community. I've got major issues with the way far too many people in the medical community talk about and understand weight. So this is, you know, I mean, not shocking at all. And <clears throat> so I'm sure that as this uh, treatment progresses further in study, uh, we'll be hearing a lot more about this in the headlines, um, particularly if it receives the okay from the regulating agencies to be marketed as a weight loss drug. You know, we have a very robust history of marketing these different weight loss drugs, and it's it's a dark history, right? There have been plenty that have made it to the market that have not actually been safe. And, you know, I mentioned Fenfen and Redux at the beginning of this episode. And, you know, those were super dangerous drugs that were, were really kind of elbowed into the market um, with some very unsavory practices there. Um, but that was a drug that was like given to teenagers even. So, you know, I'll be definitely watching this closely to, to see how this progresses you know, I've already mentioned all of the issues with, with taking this disease approach when it comes to, 
you know, fatness really, but, um, yeah, we'll be hearing a lot more about this. I'm sure, particularly if this gets the okay to go to market and, you know, we'll see where it goes from, from there. So something to, to be aware of, um, and, you know, some things to keep in the back of your mind as you start seeing more of this in the headlines. Okay, now here's a really good one. Um, so this was in the Daily Mail, which we all know is a really, really <laughs> reputable news source here. But listen to this headline. Step away from the omelet, colon. Eating just half an egg a day increases your risk of death, all capital letters, by 7%, unless you ditch the yolks, researchers claim. Want to talk about sensationalized headlines? First of all, if you're writing death in all capital letters, <laughs> like what the actual fuck? Second of all, there are approximately 37 pop up ads on my screen right now. So the fact that I'm even able to read this article is mind boggling. Like, Jesus, don't, don't even try to find the article because you're just going to freeze up your computer and then it's going to crash. So uh, this is just piss poor reporting. And again, drawing conclusions without actually, you know, factoring in the totality of the circumstances here. So basically, and the structure of this study is kind of interesting. So this was published in plus one. And um, basically what they did was they gave a questionnaire to half a million Americans between 1995, and 1996, and then followed them for 16 years. And <laughs> just listen, to, <laughs> listen to the way this is reported because it's killing me. Researchers gave a questionnaire to more than half a million Americans between 1995 and 1996 and followed them for 16 years. Data from this study published in Plus One shows that 129,328 people who filled out the original form died. Oh my God. Doesn't say anything about how old these people were to begin with. Doesn't say anything about what their health situation was to begin with. <laughs> but oh my God, people died. Like it's not an expected outcome of living to eventually die. <sighs> so basically, um, <clears throat> the study found that there was an association between intakes of eggs and cholesterol and higher cardiovascular disease and cancer mortality. Um, important note here, and anybody that's ever taken a statistics class in high school or in college knows that correlation does not equal causality. So the fact that there is an association does not necessarily mean that A is the cause of B. So basically when you actually like dive in and read the study, it's not eggs that were killing these people. It was part of a pattern of lifestyle behaviors. These people were consuming a lot of high cholesterol foods, had high serum cholesterol to begin with, and had other lifestyle habits that were contributing to these chronic health conditions um, that you know apparently ultimately contributed to their, their demise in one way or another. So it is not egg consumption doing this. It is, this is just bullshit reporting. 
and really just, I don't want to say half truths. Like it's just, it's just fake. Um, so let me like explain cholesterol a little bit here because there's a lot of misconceptions about it. So really quick overview of cholesterol. Um, we think of cholesterol as this like really bad thing, but it's actually really, really important for a lot of things in our body. It helps like with our cell membrane function. Um, you know, we are made up of cells. Um, it helps us absorb dietary fat. Um, it actually is the basis of steroid hormones that our body produces and needs. And it also helps to synthesize bile salts as well. So it plays a lot of important roles in our body. Um, and what's really interesting and I guess only interesting to me because I'm a nerd is that our body produces uh, cholesterol and we it produces a lot of cholesterol because we need it. And usually we, our bodies are actually manufacturing a lot more cholesterol than we, than we eat. And we can rely on our body pretty much to manufacture the cholesterol that we need what you see happen is that as you <clears throat> ingest dietary cholesterol, our body naturally kind of regulates its cholesterol production. So the more cholesterol that you eat, the less your body produces. And the less you eat, the more your body produces. And the liver plays a key role here in regulating that balance. So our bodies tend to have this ability to regulate our cholesterol levels on their own, but that is not the case with everybody, obviously. So, you know, there's a number of different factors that may contribute to a person's body's inability to regulate these cholesterol levels as cholesterol production versus consumption. And that's really where we get into these issues. So, if you are somebody who does not have any issues with your cholesterol levels, um, you know, and everything's functioning as it should be, then you don't need to be super concerned about how much dietary cholesterol you're ingesting because your body is going to compensate for it. Does that mean you should eat nothing but red meat and eggs all the time? No, <laughs> that's not what it means. Um, but you know, you don't have to panic about a headline like this that says that eggs are, are terrible for you because of the cholesterol that they contain. If you are somebody who does have cholesterol issues, even if you are on a cholesterol controlling pharmaceutical, you do still need to be careful about the dietary cholesterol that you are consuming. So sticking to low cholesterol foods, right? So we get cholesterol primarily or no, only <laughs> from animal sources and full fat dairy products. So you want to make sure that you are avoiding those fatty cuts of meat, avoiding red meat, sticking to, you know, lean cuts, sticking to poultry, sticking to fish, eating plenty of fiber and not eating many eggs. <laughs> if you are having cholesterol issues in one way or another. So that's like the really high level overview of cholesterol and why we we have studies like this. Um, so that's what I just wanted to make sure that I made clear and kind of cleared up because I think that there are, there's so much misconceptions about cholesterol and we just think it's a bad thing, but it is something that we actually need. So 
But I really wanted to show this because it was just ridiculous the way that this is reported on and, you know, how these conclusions kind of bypass all of these other really important factors. And it really takes going in and looking at the study to see that, nope, this is actually part of a greater pattern of lifestyle behaviors rather than eggs just indiscriminately murdering innocent people who just want to have an omelet in the morning. So we need to stop demonizing eggs because <laughs> they're delicious and they're a good source of protein and a great source of nutrition and egg whites are not as yummy. So bottom line here, unless you have a cholesterol problem, don't panic about this headline. There's always more to the story with almost anything, especially if it's on the dailymail.com. <laughs> always, always more to the story. What I find interesting is as I was Googling this article to find it again, um, so that I could just have it up as I was recording this. So this is the first hit on Google when you search egg study daily mail. The next hit is from January, 2019. And it says it's also from the daily mail. And it says, Oh, no, there's actually one under it, too, from November 16th, 2020. One, oh, wait, oh, my God, this is amazing. Wait, no, I'm, kill, I'm still reading here. So January 3rd, 2019, one egg a day lowers your risk of type 2 diabetes from the Daily Mail. Under that, November 16th, 2020, one egg a day increases the risk of developing diabetes by 60. March 4th, 2020, Daily Mail, eggs are not bad for your health, 30-year study claims. <laughs> so in the course of what I, I can't do the math however long eggs are good eggs are bad eggs are good eggs are bad <laughs> that's why we can't just like take these studies at face value and immediately run with them and just overhaul how we operate on a daily basis the science first of all nutrition science is always evolving but second of all we have this issue with these media outlets dropping these oversimplified, overly sensationalized headlines when the studies are definitely way more nuanced than that. Oh my God, how hilarious is that? So just to illustrate for you again, don't, don't freak out about headlines like this and don't feel like just because a new study comes out doesn't mean that it's like, you know, the new scientific truth. Um, there's so many other factors to consider, um, not just on the reporting, but also like, is it even a good study to begin with is also an issue. There are way more studies than should be that actually make it through peer review and get published. And they're just shit studies. Um, so keep that in mind as well. So there's another study that I wanted to talk about in this episode. This one is um, doesn't make me as angry. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Um, so the study um, came out in October, so a little bit behind the times, I guess. Um, and the title of it is Consumption of Ultra-Processed Foods and Health Outcomes, a Systematic Review of Epidemiological Studies. And the authors were um, Chen et al. There's a very long list of authors on this. So this is um, a study where these researchers really looked at, I don't want to say all of the available research, but like a whole lot <laughs> of available research. They looked at data from 
20 different studies involving more than 334,000 people from around the world, um, focusing on the consumption of ultra processed foods. Um, and basically pulled all that data together, analyzed it, and used that to come to some conclusions. And what their finding was, was that people who consumed the most highly processed foods experienced the worst health outcomes. Surely this isn't news to anybody. <laughs> um, so let's talk about what these thresholds were for the most, right? So people who had the worst health outcomes and were consuming the most ultra processed foods were consuming 30% or more of their daily calories from highly processed foods. So over a third of what they were eating every day was these, these ultra processed foods. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, it wasn't like super size me, you know, they weren't eating McDonald's every single day, every single meal, but a third is, is a significant chunk of one's diet. And when it comes to worst health outcomes, the conditions that were falling into that category were heart disease, high blood pressure, metabolic syndrome, cancer, asthma, obesity, depression, and irritable bowel syndrome. So again, disagree with having obesity classified as a poor health outcome or an illness to be treated. Um, yeah. <laughs> I feel like I've said enough on that in this episode. Um, these people also tended to have a shorter life expectancy than others who were eating less ultra processed foods. So clearly this isn't um, super shocking, but really a, a confirmation of what so many of us assumed is the case. And here's a a little bit more of a, maybe not a wake up call, because again, maybe we assumed this, looking at the countries that have the highest consumption of ultra processed foods in the US, the average percentage of daily calories that come from ultra processed foods is 57.6%. So Based on the results of this study, having a third of your calories daily come from ultra processed foods is setting you up for negative health outcomes. And here in the US, the average person is consuming more than half of their daily calories, almost two thirds of their daily calories from ultra processed foods. If you're not familiar with what ultra processed foods are, just things like you know fast food like McDonald's, um, prepackaged snack foods, um, that contain a lot of preservatives and things like that, a lot of sugar, a lot of sodium. <clears throat> so I want to talk about the implications of this because a lot of people are going to look at this and say, ultra processed foods are bad for you. You should never eat them. And this really plays into this good food versus bad food mentality again. And what this study actually shows is that it's not just the consumption of ultra processed foods that is problematic. It's how much of them you are eating. There's no such thing as a good food or a bad food. 
right? There's nothing inherently immoral or bad about these foods. It's problematic when you're eating so much of them that they are crowding out more nutritious foods from your diet, right? So it's the absence of those nutritious whole foods that are going to be meeting your dietary needs, your nutritional needs, and having that space taken up by these foods that the problems with these ultra processed foods is that they are high calorie, but they're not filling. So they're, they're very easy to overeat. It's very easy to have them take over your diet. They also don't have much nutritional value to them whatsoever. <clears throat> so that's another problem. And then another issue with them is they're hyper palatable, right? They taste like really crazy freaking good to us. So again, making it easier for us to overconsume them. <clears throat> and then they contain ingredients that when eaten in excess can have negative effects on our body. As I mentioned before, sugar, sodium, things like that. If we're eating too much of those, we're going to have some problems. So I wanted to talk about this study because I've covered the moralization of foods on this podcast several times with various guests and as I'm here talking to myself as well. <laughs> um, and I really just wanted to take this opportunity to show that we can't just take these studies and oversimplify their findings and just say, this means good, this bad. We don't eat bad, right? It's much more nuanced than that. And it's the, the poison is in the dose as with so many things. So is this study telling you to stop going to the drive-through? No, it is not. Is it telling you to quit eating Doritos? No, it is not. What it is saying is make sure that you have room in your diet to be consuming plenty of other nutritious foods as well. These aren't foods that you want to be consuming as part of, like as a staple of your diet, but you still want those nutritious foods to be a staple of your diet. We have some other issues here and what I didn't see noted here is the fact that this isn't always a personal choice either, right? Um, and if you listen to the previous episode with Amanda Getty, one of the things that we discussed was food deserts. And this is a situation where it, it occurs in low-income communities, frequently non-white communities, where there is no accessible grocery store. And these are areas where people don't have cars. You know, how far are you going to walk with groceries? How many groceries are you going to have? So very often in these low-income non-white communities, people are forced to do their weekly grocery shopping at convenience stores. And what are we getting at convenience stores? These hyper-processed, hyper-palatable foods. Or they have to go to McDonald's for dinner because that's what they have access to. And it's a lot cheaper than going to, you know, the Whole Foods, which is the only option in their area and they can't afford to do that. So something that's really important to keep in mind is that we cannot be looking at individuals whose diets are comprised largely of these ultra processed foods and blame them for their food choices because there are so many other system systemic factors at play that really need to be addressed here. 
So as I was prepping for this episode, I knew I wanted to do an episode kind of covering some of the latest headlines and studies. I actually, I got a lot of hits for semi-recent studies around weight in, you know, all kinds of iterations. And I really wanted to talk about these types of studies and these types of headlines in general with you, because I think that for many of us, especially if, you know, we don't have the training to go through the training or the time to go through and read a study and analyze it for its, its, um, you know, I'm trying to think of the word that I'm looking for. Um, basically, whether or not it's a good study, we'll we'll say it that way. I'm like really struggling with vocab today. And if you're also not trained in nutrition, you know, and you have to rely on what your physician tells you, that might be biased. Or you have to rely on what the media tells you, which is 110% biased. Um, you may look at these headlines and worry or panic immediately. And they're going to color your assumptions and the way that you show up in the world as well, because the way that these things are covered is always, always, always problematic. And what I saw as I was looking through these studies that came up in my Google search was sensationalized headlines that immediately put, you know, really, you know, first of all, they all use the term obesity and demonized it. Immediately it was obesity is the culprit for this thing. Obesity did this bad thing. Obesity, this obesity, that. And one of the things that I saw as I was combing through these studies was the fact that rather than looking at the other, um, oh my God, the other contributing factors, the conclusions that were basically, you know, even if a study did look at or, you know, take into consideration contributing factors like income level, like lifestyle factors, like, you know, genetics, what have you. At the end of the study, what many of them did was take that, push it aside, or just not look at it altogether and say, obesity caused this. We need to focus on weight loss as a solution rather than saying, we need to focus on the fact that these people in this particular community don't have access to healthful foods. And we're seeing this play out in the fact that they have this chronic health condition and their life expectancy is this. And you see this particularly in the headlines, right? The headlines are going to grab onto that word obesity and they're going to say obesity causes this. And what's important to keep in mind is to always couch those findings, quote unquote findings. Um, I actually, let's call them conclusions because we can draw conclusions regardless of what we're looking at. We need to couch those conclusions in the context of what's going on here. And I'm not asking you to, you know, subscribe to the New England Journal of Medicine or, or what have you and take the time to you know, read and analyze these studies and see, you know, well, what was the, what was the makeup of the study participants and 
you know, what was the structure of the study and that kind of thing. I'm not asking you to do that, but what I am asking is for you to keep in mind that to just say obesity does blah is always going to be a gross oversimplification of reality. And chances are there are other contributing factors, other complicating factors that are either not being looked at or are being pushed aside as that study makes that conclusion. And we see this in particular, you know, as I mentioned earlier with weight stigma, you never see that being controlled for in these studies. They're not sitting these participants down beforehand and asking them, you know, within the last month, how often would you say that, you know, somebody shouted something derogatory at you because of your size? How often do you feel that you were targeted because of your size? Do you feel like your doctor treats you differently than a straight size patient? They're not administering questions like this to these study participants, and they're not taking that into account either. And that's just one example of the things that are often not accounted for in these studies. And <clears throat> we always have to keep in mind that there's always a greater systemic context when it comes to these things. So the next time you see a sensationalized headline or you know you see a study saying obesity, blah, 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 blah. I, I'm asking you to really keep in mind that it's definitely not that simple, but they have to make these titles simple, right? Because that's how you get people to read things and they have to make them catchy and sensationalized. And there is this really gross tendency that people have to other other people who are not like them and to kind of almost like fetishize it in a way. And so keep in mind that that is going on behind the scenes when these types of things are published and don't rush into a panic and don't, especially, especially don't project that onto other people. If you are a straight size person and you see somebody who is not straight sized, check in with yourself and see what you're projecting onto them. What preconceptions do you have because of being fed this stuff over and over again through the media in your lifetime? And then question it is what I'm asking of you. That is a wrap for this week's episode of the Well and Simple podcast. As always, thank you so much for listening. If you are a fan of this podcast, give us a hand here. Um, if you're following on Spotify, be sure to click follow on that Spotify window and make sure that you stay up to date with our episodes every single week. And as always, if you have a topic that you want to see explored on this podcast, if you have a listener story that you want to share always feel free to email wellandsimplepodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to tune in every Wednesday for a new episode.